as you may know, I am kind of a nerd. And I also love football. I'm a PSG fan since I'm five-year-old. So I've lived it all with this club. And yet, I've never done a European-centered football analytics episode because, well, the US are much more advanced when it comes to sports analytics. But today, I am happy to say this day has come, a sports analytic episode where we can actually talk about European football. And that is thanks to Maximilian Goebel. Max is a postdoctoral researcher in economics and finance at Bocconi University in Milan. Before that, he did his PhD in economics at the Lisbon School of Economics and Management. And Max is a very passionate football fan and played himself for almost 25 years in his local football club. Unfortunately, he had to give it up when starting his PhD. Don't worry, though. He still goes to the gym or go running or sometimes cycling. Max is also a great cook inspired by all kinds of Italian food and an avid podcast listener from financial news to health and fitness content and even a mysterious and entertaining Bayesian podcast. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 91, recorded August 23, 2023. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. For any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.andora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbaystats.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard feynman maximilian goebel willkommen nach learning bayesian statistics thank you alex yeah thank you uh, for taking the time i'm really excited about this episode i'm really having a variety of podcast episodes these days going from so episode 989 is gonna get out in a few days. You'll see it's about sport also, but it's about the science of sports and nutrition, of exercise and nutrition. And so today we're going to talk a lot about sports also, but more about football or soccer as it's known in the US. So that's going to be a fun one. And I'm really happy to have you on the show because you are German. So if I remember correctly, Germany is in Europe. And so you would be the first soccer analytics episode, Europe-centered, which is cool. And yeah, it's one of the things I'm saying we should do more here 
in Europe. But before that, as usual, we'll start with your, your origin story. Max, how did you come to the world of econometrics and machine learning? Because it's actually what you're doing most of the time, if I understood correctly. Yeah, you're right, Alex. Well, actually, it's been, I, well, if I say it's quite a journey, it sounds dramatic, but that, that's not the case. But it took me quite a while, let's say. Yeah, that's maybe the, uh, the better framing. I, I started out in my PhD, basically, the first years. Yeah, of course, just some coursework. But I went into the PhD without really having something that I really wanted to work on in particular. So I took the first year to see which courses I like, uh, which not. And at my university, there was not really a lot to choose from. I mean, we had macroeconomics, microeconomics, and econometrics, the usual stuff. But yeah, really, nothing's resonated with me so much, I have to say. And then I thought I would do some macroeconomics. Many people, or most of the people, or PhD students really want to do something in that field. So it was also me. But yeah, I really never yeah, got familiar with that stuff so much, and I never really liked it. Uh, but in the second year, then there was a course on computational economics. I liked that quite a lot. And it was also, let's say, a tough schedule. I had to prepare a proposal within a week, and I didn't have any idea about computational economics. But that really got me into looking into that stuff very deeply, or, or deeper, let's say. Basically, what I was working on there was some clustering, some unsupervised learning, basically. Uh, but it wasn't really a fancy machine learning back then. So what I did was like the project was related to clustering community structure in the S&P 500. Basically, that was the project. Yeah, but I, I really thought, oh, this network analysis, this community structure detection, that's really cool. I want to work on that. And yeah, so I thought this would be basically the outline for the rest of my PhD. Hmm. And how did I get into econometrics and machine learning then? Because it wasn't really related to, or not really machine learning, what I was doing back then. So how did I get there then? It wasn't until the third year, basically, until I got luckily invited to the University of Pennsylvania as a visiting uh, student. And I got introduced, I got invited by Francis Diebold. And yeah, I'll be forever grateful for him for inviting me there. And he had a research group on econometrics, and at that time the topic was about climate. And I, again, I thought, well, I'm, I don't care about the topic actually. I just want to learn whatever comes to me. And so, yeah, I, I took that opportunity. He introduced me to his research group, and they were working on climate forecasting, climate econometrics, and that's how I got basically really introduced into econometrics. Because before I went to to U, the University of Pennsylvania, I thought like, yeah. I basically know what's going on and I have this and this project and that's cool. But when I really arrived there, I really got to know what uh, PhD in economics is really about. And yeah, that was, that was pretty insightful, I would say. Yeah. And that's how I got introduced basically through this research group, through projects that we were working on. And then there was one guy, he was Frank's RA. And yeah, he was working on machine learning in particular. And basically once a couple of weeks in, he came to me and asked me, well, Max, you want to get me that and that data and we can work on a project. And that started off a, a long, well, quite, well, a couple of years now uh, of co-authorship with him, with Philippe, Philippe Coulomb, who is now a professor at UCAM, University of Quebec at Montreal. And he's working a lot on machine learning and he basically introduced me to to that sphere. And so in the end, it was the third year of my PhD that I got introduced into econometrics and machine learning. And yeah, quite late, as I would say, but yeah, better late than never, maybe. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, better late 
than than never, right? So so that's cool, and you seem to enjoy that. So that's super fun. And uh, so today, what are you doing? Basically, how would you define the the work you're doing nowadays and the topics you are particularly interested in? Yeah, well, that's a good question and because everyone I got asked that question, I, I also already or always had a difficult time actually saying because I was doing something here, something there. So in between, I also thought I would like to get back to macroeconomics actually, but after spending a couple of months on something there and it didn't really work out, I completely ditched it at least uh, for the meantime. So what I'm working now is, uh, is basically yeah, machine learning, macroeconomic forecasting, let's say. I had a project on recession forecasting in the United States, which is probably a hot topic currently. Uh, everyone is awaiting it, but doesn't really seem to, to occur. So maybe we have to wait a couple of months more. And then the other stuff is basically re related to climate, a lot of climate forecasting, especially about Arctic sea ice, how Arctic sea ice is projected to evolve in the future, not only in the near future, but also in the, let's say, longer run. So when Arctic sea ice might potentially disappear, there are a couple of projects on that that is still like related to that climate econometrics group. And then the other stuff is basically yeah, machine learning. And I got really interested in, in finance, um, asset pricing, what you can do, like, yeah, kind of predicting stock returns, using machine learning tools there. That's super fascinating. And yeah, just, I mean, I have to say that I'm not a, a specialist in machine learning or so. I'm just super interested and fascinated by the tools and uh, the problems that come with them. So yeah, there's a lot of, well, uh, they're powerful, but applying them to finance and economics also comes with some drawbacks. And um, so yeah, you have to work around that and it makes it super interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's probably by being really interesting, interested in a topic that that you end up being a specialist of it, right? So it's like you don't really start being a specialist and then being interested in the subject. I'd say the causality go the other way around. So that's good. Like trying a lot of things, how you end up finding what you're really passionate about. So yeah, uh, awesome. And I'm curious actually in the research realm of economics, which tools do you use, machine learning tools to, to work in these models? Like I'm guessing a lot of open source package, I'm hoping, because I remember I was introduced a bit to, I mean, I knew a bit the econometrics, economics field in Europe a few years ago, and they were using Stata all over the place. So I'm curious if that changed and how that changed. That's a funny question, yeah, because uh, Stata, yeah, I, I mean, some people love Stata. I'm actually at the complete other end of the, let's say, of the distribution. So I always try to avoid it as, as much as I can. I don't know. I never really yeah, liked it. So what I'm using is basically R and Python. I also worked a bit on MATLAB. I like MATLAB actually a lot. But yeah, now I'm mostly working in R and Python and it really depends. Sometimes I prefer R, sometimes I prefer Python. For machine learning, I'm mostly using Python. Well, let's say for machine learning, I'm actually using R, let's say when it comes to random forests or gradient boosted trees or something like that, or just plain Lasso or Ridge. But when it comes to deep learning, then I'm using Python. So TensorFlow, now I'm trying to switch to PyTorch actually. And yeah, so that's basically the patch that I'm using. Interesting. And how do you choose the, the tool, the particular tool you're using for a particular project? That's a good question. I think that's always 
mostly an art than a science, I would say, and it's, it's up to your preference, but not all tools work in every context, right? So in economics, it's really the, the problem, especially in, I would say, macroeconomic forecasting, where you have like a uh, time series of, let's say, it gets until like 700 observations on a monthly basis for the United States, maybe. And then you have feature a feature set of, let's say, 100 features when you include lags and all that, you can, yeah, pump it up maybe to a thousand or something. But for machine learning or for deep learning, this is still rather a small data set, I would say. So that's ridiculous, actually. But still, you that's then the challenge, right? To tune them, to train them so that they don't overfit. And that's really the interesting part for me, I think. And yeah, other, in other contexts, uh, other tools might work much more in, um, conveniently, let's say, or are much easier to apply or... So some lasso or so when you have uh, a lot of features and you just don't know which features are important, then you, yeah, I like lasso in that regard because it yeah selects basically the features for you. Or you might say, well, you're in, a file, in an asset pricing context, you have returns, a lot of noise in there, signal to noise ratio, very low. You really don't know which features are important. So rich is maybe the better option because lasso would basically set almost everything to zero. Yeah, it really depends. You really have to make it dependent on the, the context that you're working in. And yeah, but that's also interesting to see which models prefer and work or work well on which data sets and which contexts. And yeah, I'm, I'm still learning in, in that regard. And that's super interesting. No, for sure. And I find that super interesting also to see these ability of open source tools to basically be adopted more and more in research, which of course I'm like extremely biased, but I welcome, but also mainly because I do think that open data and open source are natural consequence, but also cause I would say of uh, more open science, which I definitely welcome. And I think should be way more the case, like more and more you see papers with accompanying GitHub repositories and accompanying GitHub open source packages, even in Python or in R, which is definitely something new. And that's super cool that the research realm is is catching up on that because less and less you see papers where I remember a few years ago, like the first open say, the open science on, or open data papers was like, oh yeah, the data is available, by the way, at the end of the paper. And then you had to basically beg corresponding author about like three times a week for four months to get some of the data. And that was not really open, basically. So yeah, that, that's a really cool development that I really love, I have to say. No, absolutely. And this is also, I think that's a very good point. For example, me and my co-authors or my co-authors are pushing for that really to make the codes then also available on the website, for example, so that people can cross-check and that's very good. And yeah, I like that also myself when I read papers and I want to replicate something and the authors are making the code available. Basically, you can check if your own code is correct. That's super helpful. And that's you learn a lot uh, by that. And yeah, especially when, for example, using Boosted Trees or so. I mean, it's, it's XGBoost and it's super convenient to use. And for sure, there's some tuning that you have to do yourself. And But still, the package is there basically and it's super convenient to use. You don't have to code the, the whole forest basically yourself so um, no for sure yeah that's super nice and well done and like picking up all those different tools and different languages that's super cool and i don't know how it changed but i do remember that 
a few years ago, doing open source development wasn't really incentivized for doctoral candidates or postdoctoral candidates. So maybe that changed and that's further better. But if that didn't, the fact that you're doing it is like even more commendable, I would say, because that's, well, that's not really, that's a bit adjacent to your project. So yeah, well done on, on doing that and, and taking the time to do it. That's super cool for sure. So now I'd like to talk a bit about, yeah, so you said you're doing econometrics, but can you define econometrics for us and, and tell us what it brings to economics, basically? A lot of weight now for me on giving <laughs> the textbook definition of uh, econometrics. Uh, no, for, I, I mean, it's basically, uh, or now I'm butchering the whole definition probably, but it's applying statistical tools to an economic context and trying to use statistical tools to basically verify some economic theory or some to understand some relationships between economic variables. So I think it's a, yeah, that's basically it. And it's a, kind of a fancier term for what it actually is, applying statistical tools for understanding uh, economic uh, relationships, I would say. That's basically it. And it's, I mean, it's essential. I mean, for empirical work, for sure, there are economists who you only work on theory, but yeah, for policy analyses or for uh, you need to analyze the data in the end. And basically that's what I'm doing. Um, I, I don't really do theory stuff, but for me, it's just all empirical. And yeah, so definitely it's it's very useful in the end, especially for, for policymaking at central banks and, and everywhere also for for the in the industry, be it banking industry or be it just um, normal in the real economy for analyzing demand and all that. So, so I'm curious how you got introduced to Bayesian methods actually and why they stuck with you, because from what I remember from the world of econometrics, base was not used a lot in this field. So I'm actually curious why you you are using it. Well, I have to admit, like, it, so I already said that it was like third year that I got introduced into econometrics. And there was this project when Philippe, Frank's RA, basically came to me and you know, asked me to gather some data on climate variables because we want to run a vector autoregression of the Arctic. Basically, you basically get some, what we basically did is we gathered data, which or time series on certain climate variables, which we thought would proxy for the Arctic ecosystem, basically. And um, then we wanted to use a vector autoregression to analyze certain amplification mechanisms if there is a shock to CO2, for example. And also to be able to produce long-run forecasting projections, so when Arctic sea ice might potentially disappear in the future. And so the data is highly non-stationary, and in VARs, yeah, when you work with VARs, most economists really work with Bayesian methods there. And as I said, data was highly stationary, so Bayesian statistics or the frame, Bayesian framework gives you some, some leeway there, grants you some freedom there. So that was, yeah, that was why Philippe then told me, okay, look at Bayesian VARs, look at the Bayesian way. And that's how I actually got introduced to that. And there was, at the time, I really didn't have any exposure. So there was a package in MATLAB for doing Bayesian inference, basically, with VARs. And that was super helpful. That helped me a lot. That was super, edu or a great education, a source of education, really. That was great. And the more I learned about it, the more it resonated with me, this concept of quantifying uncertainty. I think this is, because especially in economics, this is quintessential to really get an idea of 
and what the uncertainty is. I mean, point estimate is always nice, but you want to have the, the, the uncertainty around it. And, and that's also what Frank people always told us. I mean, yeah, you want to have a, a measure of uncertainty. And um, definitely that's true. And yeah, you get it from the in the Bayesian framework. It's just so intuitive to think about it. And, and yeah, I like that a lot. And unfortunately, I don't really work so much or haven't worked in so many projects with, with Bayesian, Bayesian methods uh, lately, um, or as not as much as I would like to. But yeah, it's ever it's, it's ever uh, ever since resonated with me. And still, I wanted to learn more. And that's how basically I got into looking at PyMC because I wanted to learn with Python, learn Python and thought, well, maybe an application Bayesian methods, the Bayesian framework would be cool to learn. And that's how I got on into IMC3 or IMC basically, or looked at it and looked at it. So, yeah. Huh, nice. That's interesting. So, yeah, basically, it's, it's like the uncertainty quad quantifying that was really important to you. Exactly. So, that was really the, yeah, the key point there. Uh, that does make sense, right? Because, like, yeah, that's really one of the parts where base does shine a lot. And also, especially for the Arctic CIs project that you were talking about, it's like, it's not like, it's not like it's a reproducible experiment, right? It's really hard in these cases to think from a from a frequentist framework of repeatable, repeatable experiments. Like you cannot have multiple Earth in which you can do or cities where you melt the ice caps or not, and you melt it natural, like naturally, or thanks to human intervention. It's just like it doesn't work in that case. So. I'm not surprised that it would be a project where base fits way more naturally. That's for sure. I mean, there, for example, these climate models from these climate institutions and there, these are, yeah, I mean, these are huge models and big models they, to train them or, well, to, to, to run these models, it takes a lot of time and they are very sophisticated, some really sophisticated. They are basically deterministic models and they give you a, a point estimate in the end. But our interest was basically really to see, well, we get a point estimate, but we also want to see, especially when you project the path of Arctic sea ice, the uncertainty around it. Well, how likely is it that maybe our, that we see Arctic sea ice disappearing, not at our point estimate in the 2060s or 70s, but beforehand, like how large is the uncertainty? Maybe our model is really not good and the uncertainty is so much all over the place that it's more or less useless. but. Yeah, in that project, it was actually interesting to see that the uncertainty or the, the, the credible region was basically spanning like 20 years, 25 years around. So that was very interesting and it gave us a quick quantification of uncertainty too. Yeah, that was really, really interesting. That's really interesting for me to talk with someone who recently got into the Bayesian framework and to understand how you got into it and why and how. So I would have a lot of other questions on that, but... Uh, I want to talk about football or soccer. So let's switch to that. And then if we have time at the end of the episode, I'll come back with my nerdy educational questions. So yeah, basically you, you have an area or a hobby of yours where you do apply and need actually Bayesian stats and that's soccer analytics. First, yeah, I read a bit your website and I saw you were a passionate of football since for like since you were a child and you mentioned a, a bunch of European championships, not the French one though. I was absolutely outraged. Uh, <laughs> what happened? What happened? Did, like, don't you get the French games in Germany? That's another issue. So when I was younger, really, I mean, it, it was only the Bundesliga and sometimes when you were lucky, 
as sometimes you get the highlights of the of the French league, the Premier League, and the the, the Serie A. But uh, yeah, you have to be really lucky. It was not always available, and um, I wasn't that. I didn't know the websites where you could watch it, basically. So that was another, <laughs> another issue. But yeah, the French, well, the French league, I was never really a fan of. I'm sorry, Alex, but uh, yeah, that's just. Uh, even though one of my favorite players was Joao Gopi, so Olympic league. Oh really? Oh, yeah, he went to Milan. Yeah. No offense taken. I think the yeah the French league is pretty boring as long as I mean yeah. As long as PSG is dominating like that. I mean, that's good for me because I'm a PSG fan since I'm like five years old. But yeah, like it's not a very interesting league. And the level is kind of down with by the years. So hopefully we'll get some investors in other clubs which make for good competition for Paris. But until now, it's really bad. And it's actually bad for Paris because the competition inside the country is really bad. So then when they get on the European stage, they are not really, they are not really used to the intensity and having so much adversity in a way. So it's too easy for them, let's say. So basically, but I didn't get you on the show to trash the French league. <laughs> I want to talk about soccer factor model that you recently worked on. And I found it super interesting because that's mainly, yeah, the main question I always have in soccer analytics, the nerd in me is always very careful about takes that you see the, the commentators have about players where it's like, yeah, but what's the, how do you se separate a player's skill from the ability, skills and ability from his team's strength? And that's to me is extremely important because mostly in Europe right now, most of the clubs mainly invest on players on gut feeling, basically. And the thing is, when you do that and you're not able to separate inherent player abilities from uh, team strength, then you get a Nora effect from the beginning of your career that can follow you, even though you're not that good of a player, but basically... Like it can, f this aura can follow you, even though you are not making that much of a difference. But it's just like, it's hard to contradict it because you don't really have the method of the, like the scientific way of disproving basically what's going on. And that actually, well, it's not really your inherent abilities, but mainly the people you're surrounded with. And I think it's like absolutely important to do that and you should lead to really a revolutionized way of uh, transferring players and signing them and so on. So that was basically the background for people who are not interested in football. Even though, even if the field doesn't interest you, I think the method and the goal of the model is actually extremely important because you can also think about that in finance, for instance. Like I know a lot more work has been done in finance for that because I mean, the return or like basically the incentives of the money are much more important because if you make money or not, but like, I know there is a lot of literature, right? On basically passive investment versus active investment. And like, how do you actually prove that an active investment is better than a passive one? And that it's actually due to the skills of the person who invested on the market instead of just random market fluctuation. So like, you can see that in a lot lot of context where basically information is sparse, is hard to decipher, and so you need a model to make sense of it. So you can see that, I would say, in football, in a lot of sports, in finance, in medicine also, right, where it's like you can have a lot of these celebrity effects, basically. I think uh, in a lot of 
context where celebrity effect is important, it can be broken down by that scientific way of estimating it. So these politics, of course, movie, like I think it's basically a very a theme that's running in a lot of in a lot of films where the celebrity effect is extremely big. So yeah, that was a very long introduction. But to say that I think it's very useful. So you can react to what I said. And also afterwards, if you can tell us what a factor model is, because your model, you called it the soccer factor model. But then can you tell us before that what a factor model is? No, Alex, I mean, you laid it out perfectly. I couldn't have said it any more accurately, I would say, really uh, on the point as far as I see that. So a factor model, what it actually is, is a factor basically is some, I would define it as some proxy for a certain exposure to a certain, in, in finance to a certain risk, basically. Also a reduction, for example, in when you look at economics or macroeconomics, it's often yeah related to the context. You have a huge set of features and you reduce it to a couple of underlying factors or a single factor only. It's a kind of a feature reduction, like dimensionally reduction uh, technique, like PCA, principal component analysis or that. And, but in finance, it's really like a kind of a proxy for a certain risk exposure that basically kind of the cross-section of stock returns or all stock returns are kind of exposed to a certain systematic risk exposure. All stock returns are basically exposed to it. This is basically a factor and you have in the literature and as surprising as identified several of these um, common risk exposures basically across the, the whole universe of, of stocks basically but as you already said um, you can use it also as a quantifying the ability for example of of a portfolio manager or so if he is adding if he has some skill in the game basically if he has like really superior selection potential than just following along these common risk exposures, basically. And that's also what this soccer factor model basically is, is inspired by, to identify certain features that kind of all players are exposed to because of the differences in the teams. And then when you account for that, or then you can basically extract the skill and the inherent ability of each player after you account for these systematic differences across teams, basically, that influences the ability or the observed performance of the player. For sure, because like in the, exam, in the example of, of football, like you'd say it's easier to be the number nine. So the, how do you say in, in English, that position, like the front number nine is like the guy who's supposed to score the goals. Like the English natives can then tell me what the, the name is in French, that would be attaquant. Like it's easier to be the number nine of PSG than the number nine of very small team in France, right? Because the whole, the rest of the team is stronger. The manager is supposed to be stronger. Yeah, you're like, yeah, but maybe if you took the number nine of the small team and you put it in Paris, maybe he would perform as well as the current number, number nine does. So how do you make, how do you make the difference? So that's what we're going to talk about. Before that, I'm curious, from a structural standpoint, these kind of factor models, how do they work? Like, how much time do you need to really for start to decipher the difference between inherent skills and exogenous, basically, strength? And that question is basically, how much data do you need from the past years to start having an idea, like how... 
data hungry are those models? That's definitely a good question, a good point. So you have to create these or yeah, you have. So in the model that I'm basically proposing is basically you need I, I need a lead time into the season to really account for certain differences. So I need a couple of games already that would need to be played to really account for differences in teams because before the first game, basically everything or based on the data that I had, everyone would have been uh, the same. It depends really on the data. If you have data that allows you to account for differences across teams, budget, let's say, or so you can just start right away. And for overall data, I would say like more data is always better. If you have only a few observations, I think the, the Bayesian framework is then tailor-made for that as well. Like it, yeah, it, it grants you some leeway there, but I would say really it's the more data you have, the better. But yeah, but you could already. Okay, so you could already start having that idea with just a few games, then you get the idea of the strength of the team, and then you can start deciphering the strengths of the player. As far as I always used a kind of a, a certain number of, let's say, burn in games, which really account for that. Yeah. And I mean, it's not that superficial, right? Because you can think like right now, it's August, it's the beginning of the leagues for the European teams. August is a weird moment where the teams are still warming up basically and they are not really they are clearly not at peak performance usually they try to peak around spring for the northern hemisphere so around march from february to to may basically they are trying to get their peak so they are still warming up they can still trade players until the end of august so you could really say that the games they are doing in august even though they are official games they are still warming up games and don't really mean a lot for long-term performance perspective. So that's an interesting moment to start warming up the model, I'd say. And so, but something, and maybe you have that for future iterations of the model where you could put in the priors. We're going to talk about the structure of the model right away, right after that. But something I'm thinking about is that you could put in the prior the information that you have about the strengths of the team in the way that, yeah, you have the budget, which is a good proxy for potential future performance, but also like just past performance, right? If you know that Paris has been the champion for nine years out of 10, well, you have really good prior about the, the strengths of the team, right? So you can probably also add that into the model and in that way, reduce the warming up period of the model in a way. No, absolutely. Or how... Yeah, Paris against Lyon, let's say, has performed in the past. Uh, so their direct, the direct comparison between those teams, basically, when they faced each other for past years, that would also feed in there. So absolutely, there's a lot of potential. And uh, my model is, when you're basically suggesting this stuff, my model just appears like very rudimentary, but uh, could be definitely extended in that regard. Yeah, that's the fun thing of modeling, right? It's like you have to start somewhere that's good enough, and then you have a lot of ideas to, to extend it in. It's a never-ending endeavor. Like each model, if you wanted to, you could work on it your whole life. If you're interested enough, you definitely can do that. My models that I often revisit are the ones for predicting French presidential elections. When I started doing that in 2017 and compared to the one I had for 2022, it's just embarrassing. <laughs> so yeah, like... But it, in a way, it's it, it's good that the work you're doing right now is 
the best one you've ever done. And in a few years, when you look at the work you're doing right now, it kind of should be the worst you've ever done because that means you've progressed a lot in the meantime. So no, I think it's a good, it's a good mindset. So how did you adapt that factor model for soccer? Like what does the model structure look like basically for listeners to have an idea and for those watching on YouTube, you can share your screen actually. So if you want to share anything at some point, feel free to, to do it. Otherwise, the audio format is here for you because it's a podcast. So it's an audio first content. If I get it on the screen, I'll do that. But for now, maybe the structure I think is pretty simple. And as you laid it out already very accurately, it's basically trying to come up with some features, do some feature engineering that basically accounts for differences across teams. And when you look at, let's say, player, a certain player, let's say Cristiano Ronaldo, and you really want to account for the difference that his current team is currently between his team and the team that he's facing at, the, at that exact, exact instance. And you want to create some features that can proxy for these differences across teams. And that's basically the heart of the model. And this is basically inspired by this, these asset pricing factors that try to account for differences across, across assets, across stocks, across firms, basically. And the modeling part itself is really nothing sophisticated. You can include, you include kind of a hierarchical structure, but you don't need to, but it can help definitely. But it's really the feature engineering that is the heart of it. And then IMC comes in very conveniently and just basically does the dirty work for you. <laughs> so then that's cool. If it's a simple structure, yeah. Can you talk about what was your, what was your likelihood and then what kind of distribution you put on the parameters and things like that. I think it would be a fun, a f a fun thing to talk about for the listeners. Yeah. So the structure basically is relatively simple. You need some idea of what the performance of the player is and you have to have a proxy for that. And well, you need this performance to be observed, obviously. And the proxy that I choose for a player's performance is whether he scores a goal or not. So zero or one in a certain game. It's basically Bernoulli distributed, our Y, our target, and it's basically a logistic regression that we are running. Because what we want to identify is really the skill and the ability, a latent variable hidden in our observed performance measure, basically. And so the model is pretty, pretty simple. You need prior, you have basically a bunch of coefficients. That is, you have the alpha, the skill, the ability that you're interested in. And then you have the loadings, the coefficients on all the factors that are in your model. So you basically have to impose priors for all the coefficients, and then you have to define the likelihood. Then only distribute it. And yeah, that's basically the model. It's, it's on the workbook and people can go through it. That's, there's also a redacted version, basically, where people, if they are fancy, can uh, try to work with their own priors and all that and try to do it themselves first and then check the unredacted oh, that's cool. They want to play with that a bit. Yeah, that's basically it. So, so it's nothing really crazy. It's um, four lines of code, the basic model, basically. And yeah, when you look at multiple players, so you can do that for a single player only, but you can also do that for sure for multiple players. The key reason is that basically everyone should be exposed to the, each player should be exposed to the, to these factors with the same loading, basically. So you can impose a hierarchical structure on the ability and skill of each player. You should definitely do that, but you can impose the hierarchical structure by player or also by season. So the ability of the player may evolve over seasons or across seasons, basically. Yeah. I think something worth looking into. 
or worthwhile doing. And then basically you have the loadings on the factors and that they should account for the team effort. Basically you want to account that and you want to get that out of the way so that you're basically in the end left with this latent factor of the alpha, the inherent skill and ability of the player. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I mean, for sure, I will put all of these in your episode's show notes. And actually, I think I can share my screen. I didn't know why I didn't think about that before. <laughs> and here is the notebook, right? Am I on the right notebook? Yeah, so there, yeah. So there are a couple of notebooks there. So there's this in the PyAmcon folder. That's the one where there's the redacted version and the unredacted version. and the current uh, version that we're currently looking on, that's the initial part with all its typos in there. And uh, yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. So it's not the right one then. Should look at it. It's, it's the fine, it's fine one. So it's, it's, it's perfect. The other one is just a bit smaller and more concise, I would say. And um, so, yeah, like for those of you watching on YouTube, I'm sharing it right now. And so basically, this is the part of the model where you're talking about the likelihood where it's goal is scored or not scored. And then you have here the probability, which is basically here, this alpha that you talked about, right? That is the inherent skill of the player, which enters probability. And you have the axes and the beta. So the axes, are they the factors or the beta are the factors? Exactly. So the axes are the factors. These are the differences across the teams or between the teams. And this is what you want to, yeah, basically account for and to clean the performance, the observed performance measure from. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah, for sure. And then the beta is the slope basically on the factors. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It's a fun model. So of course it's hard to make it justice on the, on the podcast, but I encourage you to go and watch that part on YouTube. I'm sharing it right now. And also you can just take a look at the notebook from from Max, which I put in the show notes where you have all the details. So it's pretty fun to to look at. And also, as you were saying, the model is like pretty small. So that's the like the amazing thing, right? That I find is that basically, and now if we go look at the PyMC implementation, so a bit later down in the model, the really cool thing is that basically the model is quite easy to to code, right? And in a way, that's just a few lines of codes. So basically four lines of codes, as you were saying, and you're done. So that's the beauty of the probabilistic programming framework, right? It's, like, it's a really useful model, but if you want to get to a first good enough version that already gives you interesting insights, you don't have to reinvent everything and you don't have to go with the first hardest version from the start, right, where you have a hierarchical time series model where everything is varying and pulling information. Sure, that's cool, but don't start with that, right? It's like if you're starting to train, don't start with 100 push-ups. Start by, like, try five first and then do a few series of them and then build your way up to 100. So that's the really cool thing I find of here, the Bayesian framework coupled to the power of pro probabilistic programming languages, which is you can get down to a first good enough version, and then in a few line of codes, having your version and then sampling from it, right? Because here you have it on the screen, the likelihood that you have a line for deterministic, which is the logistic regression line, and then you have your 
intercept and your and your coefficient on the on the factors. And basically, that's it. That's really amazing. I think the beauty of PyMC that it allows you to uh, describe or build your model in a pretty intuitive way, and you can even pr let it be printed out uh, to see if everything is as you would have expected. And yeah, then PyMC does the the dirty work, the sampling and all that for you. And yeah, but it already gives you a intuitive idea of how the modeling works. And yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah, no, it's really fun. Well done on that. And so I'm curious, what are your, do you have any ideas? Like, do you want to keep working on this model? Do you have any, any ideas on where to take it from what it is right now? That's a good question, actually. So uh, definitely the model is, can be improved and definitely it's, it's all depending on the features that you have and the data that you have. And I think the, the clubs, they have so much more interesting data than I have and they could build many more interesting factors accounting for differences across teams. So yeah, I, I really don't know because I tried to reach out to a couple of clubs, let's say, but there was nothing really coming back. So yeah, apparently clubs are not interested in that or maybe they have their own models already or something. So so I really don't know. Um, I'd be excited to work on that. But as you said, it's rather a side project that I did once upon a time. And yeah, it's not really related to economics or finance. That's why I'm currently working absolutely on other stuff. But yeah, I would love to work on that in that regard. But yeah, it seems not so many teams are picking up on that, at least to those that I reached out. And it seems to be European clubs, because in part of your last episodes, I heard people talking about that in the United States. It's pretty different. And yeah, and there are a lot of, apparently a lot of clubs already trying to implement that to really trying to understand the, the inherent latent skill of, of players, not necessarily in soccer, but in baseball or in other, um, in other disciplines. This is sad, but I'm kind of reassured to hear you say that because I do think it's a huge area of improvement that there is in Europe. Clubs just don't seem to be very interested. The thing I know is that a few English clubs are using data pretty, pretty heavily, like Liverpool, Manchester City, Clubs like that, but still is kind of the exception. I know Toulouse now in France, which is a small club, and that makes sense, right? If you're a small club, you have less money, so you have much more competitive pressure to find good players, which you are not overpaying, which is basically where science can help you, right? Uh, you don't want to pay for just a name. You want to pay for someone who has a name because he's got talent, not just because he's got a name. So it's like... To me, everybody should do that. And I just don't understand why they don't. Because it's just like, that's also the beauty of sport, right? You don't care about a name. You care about what someone can do and if they have talent or not. Like, I should not care at all about the name, about the color of the skin, about nothing else but what they can do on the field. And yeah, like to me, that if I had a club, that would be one of my first priority. How do we make sure we optimize the way we are signing the players because it costs a lot of money. I think one club that also does a lot of that data work is in, in Denmark, the FC Midjutland or something. I think the uh -huh. name I got it completely wrong. But I heard once upon a, or that they're really investing a lot in data science and trying to sign players according to data or at least incorporate data a lot of in their also in their daily training exercises and all that. So yeah, they are one of the cutting edge maybe there in Europe as well. Small club, but I think they won the Danish championship like a couple of years ago. So yeah. Yeah, not surprised. I mean, something I see a lot, at least in France, and I've seen that a lot also on electoral forecasting is basically this idea that 
if you start doing that, you're basically becoming kind of inhuman and you make players being robot, basically. That's really an interesting thing to me because one of the sports that really use data heavily is cycling. And so in the Tour de France, a lot of the teams are using now data. Here again, thanks a lot to the British, which often, who often in Europe are the first one to, first ones to take up the data wave. And so I know, for instance, Bradley Wiggins, I think he's won the Tour de France. I don't remember how many times, but a lot of times. And basically a lot, like the whole team was using data to optimize the performances of the team. And that was when like the British started being like, okay, we need to get back on our cycling game. They started using data extremely optimally and well, they did. And thanks to this, basically a lot of the teams started to do that again. And the Tour de France is extremely optimized on that. But it's funny because when you hear the mediatic coverage of that, at least in France, it's a bad thing because it's like players are becoming robot and they cannot eat what they want at the time they want. And they like, it just gets the magic out of the Tour de France rounds. And I strongly disagree with that, of course, because the performances get better in a clean way, of course. Well, then that's just better for everybody. The show is going to get better. And also we're talking about the Tour de France or professional athletes. Like their goal is not to recreationally do that. They do that for a living. So it's important for their own, basically, income. But also they do that because they want to be the best. So they are not doing that because, well, they just want to cycle on the weekends, right? They cycle for a living. So, yeah, sure, if you're an amateur cyc cyclist, then, okay, you don't need the same structure as a professional cyclist. But even then, if you want to improve your performance as an amateur cyclist, you're going to need to optimize some of the things and if you really care about it, you're going to need to optimize your nutrition, for instance, and and maybe when you take take your meals or else. But if you're a professional, the, the the one slightest change can mean you perform one second better or two seconds better, which can make you win the Tour de France or not. So I don't understand this argument in this context where you're trying to optimize performance. For, for me, it's like not something that should count here. They are not doing that for pleasure only. Absolutely agree. No, absolutely agree. Should be incorporated much more, especially for the clubs. In the end, it will. I think it, it will pay off. You want to pick a lemon, and you just rather pick it. It's an interesting topic for me because I'm trying to crack that nut, and I cannot crack it for now. Like understand why basically the the clubs in Europe are not really interested in that because I don't really care about the journalist side or else. I'm like, once the club starts picking that up, then. Everybody will have to. But what I'm trying to understand is why the clubs don't do that. Because it's just leaving gates on the table. I'm just super curious about why they would do that from a sociological standpoint, honestly. Because I've seen a lot of clubs using, they have data science teams, but they use it for marketing. And I'm like, that's such a shame. I see, I see. I don't know why. So if anybody knows, please get in touch. If anybody's working in a club, please get in touch with Max or me, because I want to know about it. We don't even need to work together. I would be happy to help you out with a model, but for now, I just want to know why. <laughs> and what are the internal factors? Because definitely there is something going on, but I don't know what it is, and I'm just curious about it. So yeah, to try and make it a bit more constructive, like, do you have any idea on like how you, like, we personally in the data world could change the status quo 
in that regard. And not only for sports, but that's also true for a lot of domain where more robust application of the scientific method would be useful, but it's hard to get it done. Do you have any ideas personally on how that status quo could be changed? It's really hard to say. It depends on the willingness to adopt these, uh, to be open to these uh, methods, I would say. And the players play an important part, or I think the crucial part, because if the players are not willing to adopt these additional insights, I would say, that's just not possible. But for sure, I mean, as you say, it's management, it's internal uh, things that are going on there, politics potentially, but I really don't know. How can someone resolve that? I don't know. I regard it always as for sure you shouldn't base all your decisions on this model or on a single model or so, but it can help stimulate your decision process. And I think it's a useful addition. And in the end, for sure, there might be an upfront cost basically to, to implement, to get the data, to implement the model, to hire people to produce that. But in the end, it actually may, may pay off economically because uh, it may save you from picking a lemon overpaying massively. So yeah. I see it really as a worthwhile investment. And I think the United the US sports has demonstrated that. So Yeah, I mean, just look at the US. Just look at all the other fields, especially marketing, for instance, which is starting and already started to adopt data analysis and modeling aggressively. And they just like, we do that a lot at labs, basically making them save a lot of money and not only save money, but make more money. So like, it's just, yeah, like I don't think... This is a question, but yeah, I mean, something you can do, I would think if you're interested in it and have the time, something maybe that could work is if you could make some predictions with your model, basically, and I I would think to get it per player, you would probably need some hierarchical structure in that to get some better predictions. But once you get there, you have some, something of a web page with basically the predictions of the model per player saying basically this player is basically overvalued and this player is undervalued based on the the results of the model. And then basically see what that gives you during the season. Because if at the beginning of the season, you can say that player is basically undervalued, he's going to perform better than what the market currently think. And then people see that it's true. Well, that's a clear sign that basically these kind of methods and models are working. And so that could spark some interest because definitely demonstrating what a model is for. Because um, my hinge, hunch, I think it's hunch. My hunch is that basically the decision makers in the clubs are not data, don't really know what data is about. And they even don't know what a model is and what it can give you. But if you are able to demonstrate what a model can give you, because they don't care about the model, the priors, the parameters, stuff like that. They just care about the results of the model. So if you can demonstrate the results of the model, and even better, what the model can say about recruiting that player or not recruiting that player, that would maybe have a better impact. Or at least I would say it increases the probability that the impact these methods can have get noticed. That's absolutely the case. For sure, it depends on having the real-time data, basically getting the real-time data. Exactly. That's, I mean, an upfront cost that you would have to pay. No, but that's actually the intent, really. This is the intent to run that model for multiple players as, as part of the workbook, for example, to lay it out and to compare which players perform well or, or not. And you see it, for example, Cristiano Ronaldo, when he won the World Player of the Year award in 2008, he was basically in the middle of the pack and um, in that season. So there were other players actually outperforming, for example, Dimitar Berbertov at that uh, 
in that very season. Uh, he was playing for Tottenham later on in the year uh, thereafter, signed by Manchester United. So, so you see that. And uh, for sure, there's a lot of subjective judgment then coming in from uh, when you observe it and you see the model telling you something completely different. But this is stimulating and it should potentially update your, your priors. So your subjective price, basically. So yeah, yeah. It forces you to lay out your priors clearly in on paper. So it's actually very important. Yeah. So. I would say definitely something like that. In if you have the predictions for the biggest number of players on a web page and basically betting based on the model, saying that this model, this player is gonna overperform in respect to the market or underperform in respect to the market, that's an interesting thing. And also, yeah, as you were saying, for the individual rewards where the name is extremely like counts a lot, where you can see someone like Messi with like who is yeah sure an incredible player but like the number of times he's got the golden how is it called in english ballon d'or golden ball you could argue that some of these seasons where he did get the reward and maybe there were other players who were actually overperforming him but they don't have the name recognition so they are not scrutinized as much and they don't have the confirmation bias going in their favor, where it's like everybody's looking at Messi because they already know he's extremely good. So they just look at confirming the, the fact that he's incredible. He is, but maybe not all the time so as to get so many rewards. So yeah, like that. To me, that would be a really good way of demonstrating the, the utility of these methods, basically making it really concrete for the decision makers. So before we close up the show, I'd like to get back a bit on your personal experience with Bayes. And I'm curious, what was your main pain point on this project, the soccer factor model? And, and just in general, when you're using the, the Bayesian workflow, what is your main pain point right now? In that project, I really have to admit that uh, Mayor was lucky. <laughs> there wasn't really a, a huge pain point. I mean, it's not a, something of publishable for a paper or so. It's just basically sketching the idea behind the model and basically showing the outline of the model, what it can give you. But when I was running it, it the sampling worked pretty well. Didn't I didn't really, yeah, I don't remember any really big problems. So then when I looked at the model evaluation, everything looked fine. I mean, for example, how we can evaluate the how well the model works is when you look at in this logistic regression at the area under the curve, for example, it's a popular metric and it wasn't a reasonable ballpark and that was fine for me so that the model didn't the results were really what you would or that it's kind of reliable the results so it was not much of a pain point and that's that was also nice for me to see that yeah it's a simple model and it works also pretty simply and yeah i was that was a project that I was pleased to see that there were not many obstacles that I had to overcome. Nice. Yeah, that's good to hear. And so in, in, in general, in the Bayesian workflow, do you identify something in your own learning is costing you to learn right now that has cost you to learn and you would like an easier way to have learned that? I have to say that, for example, with all the different samplers that are out there, that's not my major field. I would like to learn much, much more about the inner workings of all these samplers. I mean, I coded maybe the, one of the simpler ones myself, maybe, maybe once or so, but then I really resort to open source packages for that. But I to really understand what's going on, I think, yeah, looking deeper into that, that's definitely something uh, I would like to do and, and, and would need to do. But yeah, I think that's basically the math of it, I think is the most fascinating stuff and how it really works and how it's then implemented in code. 
think that's the most fascinating stuff. But yeah, the beauty of PyMC then is if you really want, are interested in the outcome and want a fast outcome, it's pretty intuitive. And, um, okay, well, that's good to hear. Yeah, and I'm asking that from a developer perspective and also teacher perspective. That's always interesting for me to to get a peek in the learning experience of the of the people. Cool. So before we close up the show, is there a, is there a topic I didn't ask you about and that you'd like to mention? Well, actually, it was yeah. My my career hasn't progressed so much so far, so I think we covered everything there. So no, oh, yeah, it's pretty interesting, and uh, yeah, you you covered every actually everything. <laughs> yeah, we did record for a long time, so <laughs> that's surprised. <laughs> yeah, and I'm happy. I I got to ask you the main thing I wanted to ask you. So that's super cool. In a reasonable amount of time, I, I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it because the last two episodes <laughs> the, were the two longest of the whole podcast. So it's good to get back to reasonable amounts of time for people, I guess. And yeah, so before letting you go, I'm going to ask you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So Max, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? I think one of the most popular answers is climate change. And definitely, it's probably the most pressing problem, especially here in Milan currently. And you really feel it. When I've been, or throughout the time, I've been working on a bit of climate econometrics, let's say, forecasting RTC. As I saw what people are really doing in climate, and what, yeah, they're fascinating people out there very intelligent people. So I think money, throwing money on me would be wasted in that regard. I mean, what I'd be rather interested in is like, yeah, maybe implementing that into sports, into sports analytics, right? To allow teams to access data, to have access to data and to kind of create that level playing field across players. And then really, yeah, it's an investment and people spend a lot of, especially in investing and in, in, in banking and finance, spend a lot of time on crunching numbers. And why not do that in, in sports as well, if you have the data available? So I'd be very interested in working on that. That's for sure. Yeah, I love it. Me too. That's a good one. And if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? Well, that's pretty a tough question, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> no, really. It's Yeah, there's so many amazing people out there and when you read papers uh, it's really incredible what people are doing and so yeah there's so many people i would like to talk to well one well one for sure it's frank Diebold, the guy and the um, who basically invited me to the university of pennsylvania because that was a defining point in my phd absolutely but then if i could pick one is because we should expand on your network basically ben bernanke he was former uh, president of the federal reserve he received the Nobel Prize in Economics. Well, people say there's no Nobel Prize in Economics, but yeah, the Rick's Bank Prize last year for his work on bank, the banks and the crisis. And um, yeah, that would be super interesting to talk to him. He served his country basically. Then he was assistant professor. So how he managed all that. And yeah, that would be super interesting to talk to him. Phenomenal scholar. And I like reading his papers. So super cool. <laughs> Love it. Very nerdy answer. <laughs> awesome. Well, Thanks a lot, Max. That was really interesting. You allowed me to rant about some of my pet peeves about data analytics and soccer. And I hope people learned learned a bit more. And of course, if they are curious, as usual, I will put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Max, for taking the time and being on this show. Thanks, Alex. It was a pleasure. 
This has been another episode of Learning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.